All right, pathological gambling. Thank you guys back for uh, those who made it back on time. Thank you so much. Um, so let me confess up front that uh, these slides I got from my mentor, um, Dr. Tim Fong. He is a gambling expert, meaning this is his passion, this is what he does. Um, so let me not try to pretend like I'm some gambling expert, but um, so these are his slides. All right. Um, Physiology in context. Yet again, what you see with addictions is you see the devil taking this stuff out of context. Guys, life is a gamble. That's why we need faith. You know that, right? You know, we commit ourselves to an academic endeavor. It's not guaranteed you're going to make it through. But when we make it through, doesn't it feel good? You know? So, so, so God challenges us by default. Hey, I want you to, you know, commit yourself to tasks. You know, have faith that it's going to happen. But life can be, um, life can be a gamble. Do you understand that? Um, so let's take a look at what gam those addicted to gambling look like when they present to us in the clinic. So 54-year-old female presented for alcohol abuse. And this can often happen. A lot of times people come in for one disorder. So three or four days per week four drinks per night. She'd had a history of two DUIs. So yeah, she's got an alcohol issue, all right. She's drinking at work, no tolerance um, um, or withdrawal. Let me see. And she just can't stop. During the intake, she reveals that she has a 10-year history of regularly gambling. When drinking, she notes that gambling escalates, all right. And so 2009, her losses totaled up to $45,000. So one of the ways to very quickly you know, document, is this gambling issue something serious, is just be like, this is how I ask the question. I say, over your life, how much have you lost and not netted? I'm not interested in netted, because they always like to come out on top. <laughs> I haven't lost. I, I, no. How much have you lost in your life? Um, and so sometimes you hear, oh, man, I don't gamble. So we're talking 200 bucks. Versus sometimes they'll be like, oh, I don't gamble. I lost 5,000 bucks, you know. So you know, well, maybe you don't realize that you gamble, but this is more of a problem than you think. Of course, you got to take things in context. Persons sometimes can be very well-to-do. But still, once you're past 1,000, you're starting to start to um, pay attention to things. Um, now, for a Christian context, when you understand that your money is not your own. Oh, guys. When you understand your money is not your own, and we are held to the standard of every resource God gives you. Let me help you out. Every talent God has entrusted you with, he's going to hold you accountable for. You remember the story, right? Comes back to them. What did you do with the talents I gave you? And our talents consist of time, our resources, our gifts, did you multiply interest for the kingdom? Gambling? Seriously? Okay, so consequences are hidden away from the spouse. So, of course, there's that break in trust, credit card debts, time lost, emotional distress, poor work pro um, productivity. So, 1975, this is what the, 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 the scope of gambling looked like in the United States. All right? This is how many of the regions were involved with gambling. This is 1975. Wow. This is 1999. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, so there's a range of gambling behavior um, recognized in the literature. So they talk about the social gambler. So 85%, 85 to 90% of gamblers 
um, fall into this range. Then you have the problem gambler, so that's five to six percent. And then of course you have the pathological gambler, okay? So that's like one to two percent. So they're gambling compulsively. What's interesting is you have this like fraction of the population that gamble for profession. So they're like one to two percent of gamblers. I'm saying that carelessly right now. Um, but the interesting thing is 90 percent of gamblers think they're professional gamblers. <laughs> that's a joke, okay? So I'm just kidding. I can already see the emails. <laughs> Your doctor said no. All right. So the DSM-4 highlights the fact that along with gambling, you'll see preoccupation. You'll see tolerance. So you have to gamble more to get the same effect. Um, chases, you know, periods where they are sort of binging on gambling. They just can't stop. There's a point to where you start getting illegal acts. Some of these, uh, some of these high-profile um, hedge hunts, hedge fund um, folk, a lot of times when you pull back the surface, you'll find there's actually a gambling addiction that, that may be um, coming to bear. A lot of lying, um, tons of issues, a number of which are fairly, counter, uh, fairly intuitive. Um, in terms of financially, the average debt will total up to 45,000. You imagine that, 45,000 debt for gambling, not for school, not for medical costs, for gambling. Um, relationships, divorce. Um, child abuse, time lost from like 25 hours per week. Multiply that by your pay rate, man. My goodness. Um, crimes, a lot of times nonviolent, and it skyrockets your likelihood of developing a comorbid substance use issue, okay? And of course, there are medical consequences. You recall what our uh, good friend mentioned earlier this morning about how diseases of the mind often translate into medical illnesses, okay? Um, very, very, very um, um, uh, damaging condition. So, I mean, you, you see the impact. Satan has something for everyone, something for everyone. He doesn't care what takes your eyes off Christ. He really doesn't care. All he wants is your eyes off Christ. All right, um, so the course of pathological gambling, the gambling and the consequences are hidden. Individuals, um, so these are some of the things that are kind of unique to pathological gambling. Whereas with alcohol, you can sort of overdose. With gambling, it's a little harder to do that. Um, the other thing is, what does a gambler look like? With, with alcohol addiction, you know, there's actually some physical, you know, findings, you know. They talk about the nose, they talk about, you know, liver, and uh, sometimes you can get uh, ascites and you get the bloated abdomen. Um, yeah, but you get these physical ma manifestations. With methamphetamines, you can see what we call the meth mouth, so massive destruction of the teeth and the, and the dentition. But with gambling, what does the person look like? Um, so tremendous volatile financial consequences of, as I've documented um, and it's hard to test for it. It's hard to test for it. Um, but I will say there is this insight. Um, if you look at a person's financial sheet, that's a pretty good way, good thing to um, monitor. And so the course tends to be chronic and relapsing, all right, most of the time. Um, all right, and so this data, again, was gotten from my, my friend, Dr. Timothy Fong from UCLA. So I just wanted to mention that. Now, don't you hate when presenters, you know, they wow you with all this data, but they don't talk to you about effective treatment? Isn't that frustrating? And so that's why I really kind of skated through some of the data, because the data is out there, and a good deal of it you actually know. 
Um, what we really want to take a look at, though, is treatment. What can we do about this? And so that's why I, I rushed. And thank you for your patience. So what is the real issue behind addiction? So I've said it before, but it's, it's processed pleasure. God gave us an orange. We want the orange juice, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, he gave the coke a leaf. They want cocaine, <laughs> you know? processed, all right? Um, like I said, life is a gamble. Well, you want to sit at a slot machine. No, man, go, go study something. Go commit yourself to, 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 to something for the kingdom, you know? And now that's exciting. What puts us at risk for addictions, all right? This gentleman, Dr. Bruce Alexander, I just stumbled across his book, and, he, and, and it's entitled The Globalization of Addiction. I do not agree with a good number of things that Bruce Alexander says. He likes to say that there are no substances that are addictive. I have to part company with that, you know. But what I do like about what he said is that addictions are a lot more pervasive than we think. He is famous for what is called the Rat Park Experiment. Very fascinating experiment. Um, so Dr. Alexander was frustrated by the fact that researchers who would say, you know, cocaine is so addictive, notice that the rat will bar press to death in pursuit of cocaine. He's like, you haven't proven anything. All you've proven is that they are living in a miserable condition, okay? And so they would do that to death. Give them an alternative and they won't do that. And so what he did was he designed Rat Park. And Rat Park was this elaborate park, you know, where it, it was basically like an amusement park. It was like Disney World for rats, you know? Um, so, you know, they had their little gerbil wheels, you know, and all this other kind of stuff. And what he noted was that when rats were offered drugs in that context, they were less likely to choose the drug. Now, this is what I find interesting. And what, what he further said about that is, Make a person, dislocate a person, disconnect them from their social environment, and you will skyrocket their risk of abusing something. The other thing he did was he made the definition of addiction far more pervasive, far more pervasive. He's like, take a serial killer, you know, they're probably addicted to killing. You know, they're doing this serially. There's probably a compulsive component to it. But he made it far more addictive. And so that's why now we're starting to be more attentive to, well, look at hyper-religiosity. Look at workaholism. Look at all these addictions. But who is at risk for addiction? People in pain. People suffering. This world wants pain relief. They want pain relief. And they are desperate for their pain relief. And we're seeing the consequences. Okay? We're seeing the consequences. So when we, as a therapeutic community, decide that we need more law enforcement and we need to crack down access to, uh, to drugs and so on and so forth, that's part of it, though. Are we providing alternatives to relieve pain? And that puts us as a church in a unique position in a very exciting position. Okay? So what protects us from addictions per scripture? If I go to Psalm 1, and whenever I'm studying scripture, what makes scripture rich for me is always remembering who's writing. 
All right, who is writing? And so who's writing in the psalm? David. This is a head of state. This is a person who understands power. And this is Psalms 1. The other thing I notice is significant in the Bible is 1. Pay attention to the first thing that chapter is saying. Okay? Notice what it says in verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Read it with me, would you? Nor standeth in the ways of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Stop. It's saying don't walk, stand, or sit in the seat of the scornful. Is this counsel you guys are following? Or do you find yourselves under the influence of the ungodly? Because it explains what the consequences are when we allow ourselves to be influenced by the ungodly. And when you pop on that television, those are, those are holy influences you're under, right? Holly. Holly. And what's the definition of holly? That's correct. Mesmerizes. Okay. So what kind of influences are we putting ourselves? One of the most fascinating things you can do is the more evil the movie, don't go watch the movie. Research the author. Research the producer. And that's where you get really intrigued and you're like, I wouldn't go anywhere near that movie. Um, one of the ones that I think about is True Blood. True Blood. When you research the author and what he has to say, you're like, I wouldn't go anywhere near that. I wouldn't go near that because why? Who you are is going to come through with what you produce. Okay. But here you have Psalms 1 telling you if you're interested in power, real power, you won't walk, sit, or stand under the influence of the ungodly. And guys, we're under the influence. We place ourselves under the influence of the ungodly way too much. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate. Meditate. And unfortunately, that word meditate has been hijacked um, by the New Age. Hijacked. Because it's not talking about emptying your mind. Okay? God did not give us 100 billion neurons to empty our minds. He gave it to us to visualize, to plan, to reflect on the past, understand the present, and plan for the future. He gave it to us to think, meditate on the law of God. And in his law, that he meditate day and night. And what will be the consequence of that? What will be the consequence of meditating on the law? And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters. And this is it. Don't miss this. Who bringeth forth fruit in his season. Have you been through a season? Has anyone here been through a season? A season of difficulty. A season of strife. What were the fruits you produced in that season? Well, those fruits will tell you what you are planting yourself next to. If you don't like the fruits, change what you're planted next to. Get up from that television. Get up from that music that is so questionable, that is influencing you. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And again, we're talking about addictions. 
So now that was the counsel of the father. Now listen to the counsel of the son, Solomon. Proverbs chapter 23. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee and put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite. That's subtle, isn't it? That's easy to miss. Really? <laughs> be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. You take meth, you take speed to speed you up, but what does it do? It slows you down. You take alcohol to calm you down, then why are you showing up to me with an anxiety disorder? You take it for a mood enhancer when we know pharmacologically alcohol is a depressant. And then it messes with the neurons to the point where you hear alcoholics say this a lot of times. I drink to feel normal. Now you want to talk about deceitful meat. But just when you thought it was talking about food, just when you were sure it was talking about food, it says labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Will thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee. But his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten, thou shalt vomit up and lose thy sweet words. So many of us have been victimized by this. We sat to dine with the ruler of this world and we craved his dainties. We wanted the degrees. We wanted the house. We wanted the, the, the beach home, you know, and you name it. You name it. Sold out to get those delicacies. And what is it that we have to sell? We have to sell time and we have to sell uh, talents. And so often it's, okay, I could spend more time with you or I could pursue this. And too often we pursue this. Be more sensitive to how you're using your time. We crave the delicacies of this world and a lot of us have had the experience of now having to vomit it up. Our good words. Oh, this car is awesome. But as we're sitting in divorce court having to drive home in that car, not a pleasant experience. Now, on a more fascinating note, what did, that, what did Dr. Alexander tell us? Dr. Alexander said that dislocation, you know, so where you isolate a person, where a person is in pain, they're going to be at risk for addictions. Enter the experience of Daniel. A lot of people don't know some of the backstory with Daniel. Let's talk about the trauma that that young man experienced. How old is he when he's taken to Babylon? 17. Brothers, like 17. I want you to think about the average 17-year-old today. The brother is 17. He survives a siege. It wasn't too bad of a siege, right? Women were eating their kids. Talk about someone who's experienced hunger. You guys remember 9-11, right? Just two of the buildings in our country was knocked down. 
What happened to Jerusalem? What was the political mindset of this young man? But that was enough, right? No, 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 no. His king, 10 sons, get killed in front of the king's eyes. And the king gets mutilated and put in jail. His Jerusalem, the pride of his joy, is destroyed. I want you to think about the psychological mindset this man should have had. Is that all that was done to him? No, because if you read the book of, I believe it is, is it Ezekiel? Isaiah. I'm almost sure it's Isaiah. No, it's Isaiah or Jeremiah. One of them, but in the book, what it does is um, Hezekiah. Um, so Isaiah comes with a prophecy for, um, for um, Hezekiah, and he lets him know, dude, you made a mistake. You showed these Babylonians all your goods. What you should have showed them was your God. They're going to take all those goods. And they're going to make your sons eunuchs. So there's a good likelihood this young man, in addition to all that, was castrated. Now that is a condition of that man who is sitting now at the king's table. Okay, all your suffering is over. I'm going to put you at the king's table. You're going to get the king's meat. And you're on a fast track to the Obama White House. Because this is going to now get you into uh, a, a, a service, servicing in the king's court. And it is the condition of that mind where he said he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. But I thought he was dislocated, Dr. Alexander. I thought you said he was dislocated. You know, surely he would have succumbed. And what I'm emphasizing here is there are protective aspects of Adventism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that will save us if we follow them. I'm wired for alcoholism. I'm wired for alcoholism, no question about it. But thank God, my faith's my faith's culture is don't try it once. Don't try it once. That has been a preservative for me. Of course, Christ has. But Christ has guided this faith to put in place teachings that will protect us from this stuff if we will stop trivializing them. So what can the church do about addictions? I do believe, I do agree with Dr. Alexander, that suffering, discomfort, and dislocation increases the likelihood of anyone suffering that. It increases. It's a risk factor for developing an addiction. What do we as a church meaningfully do for the addicted community? We introduce the addict to Christ, Amen. the risen and relevant Savior. Amen. The risen and relevant Savior. That means we don't start talking about, um, I don't know, what are, some of, what are some of the things that we like to push on people? We don't eat meat, but we aren't making sure they have a plate of food to eat. Suffering is a window through which we can shine the glory of God. That's all suffering is. When people are suffering, they're open but not open to chiding or open to shame. They're open, open to the relief of their suffering. And that's why we really do have a God-inspired uh, mission and agenda. We said, you know what we want to do as a church? You know what we want to champion? 
We want to champion education and we want to champion health. Because I don't care how much you hate me, if I educate you, if I empower you, if I open up the opportunities for you, you're going to embrace me. And I don't care how much you hate me, but if your leg is broken and I have the ability to heal it. So we get to be relevant. Well, how do we be relevant to addicts and alcoholics? We need to listen for the need. We need to listen for the need. We need to listen. We need to stop talking, and we need to listen for the need. Listen for the stated need. What do we need to do? Listen. 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 There is no more powerful ministry than when you state a need, and that need is addressed. Don't show up at my house with, with, with food bags, and I haven't said I needed food bags. Yeah. It's insulting to people sometimes when you yeah. do that. You know? Now, sometimes we know that they need food, so give them the food. I get it. All right? One of my best friends does that, and it's an awesome ministry. But all I'm saying is, why not ask the need? Because I might tell you, no, my, 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 my storehouses are filled to the brim, but my marriage, that's in shambles. You got a counselor for me by any chance. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to the need. Let's index our strengths in addressing the stated needs. So what this is underscoring is these ministries of our churches that are operating so, so separately, that's got to come to an end. Amen. That's got to come to an end. We have to collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Yes. We've got to come together, put all these differences aside. I've got a need. I've got some. I've got a need here, guys. Uh, you over in music ministry? This guy likes music. You know what? That's going to be an important part of his sobriety. You guys, you guys understanding that we have to collaborate. Coll that is one of the unique things about our church. When we take something seriously, we can move on it because we have an awesome infrastructure that we need to stop being ashamed of. Most powerful on earth. That's a powerful statement. But it was God inspired. It was God inspired. It wasn't slapped together. So, essentially, what we're talking about is recovery looks like reconnecting the person struggling with addiction with the natural highs. Okay, so if you have a family member or a friend who is struggling with an addiction, you will know that they are in meaningful recovery when they are experiencing the natural highs. And what am I talking about with natural highs? I'm talking about their spirituality. <sighs> got news for you, folk. God is not the God of our understanding. Yes. God, by his very definition, stands outside our understanding. Yes. Okay? He, by his... And the minute we start understanding him, <laughs> we don't know him. God, by his very definition, stands outside of our understanding. Okay, and one of my soapboxes is so often people are asking for more of an exposure of God. God, show me more. What have you done with what I've showed you? And why should I show you more if you've been unfaithful with what I've given you? Intimacy. Another important part of recovery is intimacy. So it's meaningful, intimate experiences. And when I say intimate, a lot of minds go right to romantic. Yes, romantic is part of intimacy, but there's also non-romantic intimacy. 
Okay, and that's why the relationships are so critical. Nutrition, sleep, wellness, lifestyle, guys. Lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. Oh, so there's no way to get sound. Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, um, can I play a piece? How do I do that? Oh, just use the mic? All right, straight. We'll do that. I'll bring it close up. Okay. Lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. I'll have people who'll sneak up to me and they're like, uh, we know you're a psychiatrist. Uh, what do you think about your, uh, your medications? Okay, so medications have a role, but every physician knows that when you want to get some awesome results, people got to change their lifestyle. People got to change their lifestyle. We, we know it. And what cracks me up is when we see these robust experiences of people changing their lifestyle, they come into the doctor's office and they are humbled. Humbled because they know those results pale. Those, those results far trump what the medications were delivering. All right, don't sue me. I'm not saying you don't need medications. All right? I'm not saying throw away your doctors. Don't even try it. All right? But I'm just saying, I cannot emphasize to you how important a healthy lifestyle is. And then, of course, exercise. Exercise is in a category all by itself and also significance. And again, the point of why I'm talking to you about this is I want to emphasize the fact that if you're looking at an addict and you're asking yourself, is this person in recovery? Look at how they are experiencing the natural highs. And when you see someone and their, 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 their natural highs is collapsing, that's a good indicator that they're still struggling in recovery. Because one of the things that's really exciting is when you see an addict in recovery. You see them on fire about something. <laughs> it could be yellow. They are on fire about it. Um, one of my good friends, um, uh, Cliff, uh, I forget his last name, but I'm a pretty well-known guy, actually. Um, but he talked about one of the things he recognized was he stopped and he said to himself, my goodness, if I'm putting all this energy into the pursuit of heroin, what would happen if I put this energy to good use? Mm -hmm. And significance, significance. Remember before I talked about meaning and purpose. There is no high greater than when you feel like you are connected with the purpose God has for you. You're unstoppable. Like God's going to take care of this. And so that's an ultimate high that you would want for anyone that is uh, um, pursuing recovery. So also, the church can't do it all. You're going to have to refer to treatment centers and treatment professionals. But I would say the litmus test for who it is you choose needs to be how much are they empowering the patients to re-engage with the natural highs. Okay? If it's a therapist, yo, how seriously do you acknowledge their spirituality? I didn't say tolerate their spirituality. I mean celebrate their spirituality. Okay? Not some careless, you know, no, if you want to be spiritual, that's okay. No, 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 no. How do you nurture it? How do you encourage it? How do you respect it? How do you foster it? Okay? And so I'd probably lose my job if I didn't make a plug for my university. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I, uh, I'm, I'm coming from uh, the Behavioral Medicine Center at Loma Linda University. And so it's in the Behavioral Medicine Center that what does treatment look like? 
So there are addictions that require detoxifications. All addictions require detoxification, um, but um, there are some where the detox is actually life-threatening, okay? Most, a lot of addictions, when you're detoxing, it's very uncomfortable, but some are actually life-threatening. So you'll get the occasional church congregant who comes in, I've stopped drinking, pastor. How much were you drinking before? About a gallon of whiskey a day. <laughs> and, uh, and you just stopped, you know. You want to refer that person to a treatment professional immediately. Yes. Okay, because what are they putting themselves at risk for? A seizure. And delirium tremens specifically. All right? So there are addictions where the detox requires withdrawals. That's the same for benzodiazepines, like Ativan and, you know, people on this thing for a while, and now they just want to stop it suddenly. That's not a good idea. That's why the church has to partner with treatment professionals. You understand that? Um, can't just say, we'll pray this one, you know, out. There's a role for prayer, but it's prayer that led us to developing Loma Linda University. Amen. Okay? All right. So, um... So there's a role for transitional medications like Ativan and Suboxone, um, so Valium in, in particular. These are medications that we will at times use to, to safely transition someone on, um, let's say, alcohol, so on and so forth, safely off of it. Okay? And then, of course, there are also supportive medications that I'm not going to belabor you with. Um, but then, after they've gotten through detox, detox is often somewhere between five to seven days. If the insurance companies have it their way, it would be three days, <laughs> you know. Um, but safely um, do it. We're talking about five to seven days. So it is in rehab that people will experience um, their group. So people will be placed in groups. And group therapy is something powerful because it is in the context of a group that that person gets to look into the future and see what is waiting for them if they continue along on that path. So group is very, very powerful. And there's a part in group where you are embraced and you are taught how to function and, 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 and basically everyone puts their arm around you. And I'll occasionally get the patient who comes in and they're like, you know, I don't think I need group anymore. You know, I think I'm good. Well, now you're ready for the second phase of group. And that phase is where now you put your arm around the newcomer. Okay? So there's very, very powerful components in group. And the other thing about group is it allows you to see yourself in ways that you've never seen yourself before. I love watching a patient in a group because there are things that will happen that a lot of times they will not articulate themselves. So there's a powerful role for groups. Um, at the BMC, we do 12 steps based groups. Um, and so there's a role for a sponsor. You know, I love to say that I live a life of recovery. All right? I live a life of recovery, and I do. And I hope you guys do too. Um, I have sponsors. I have people that influence me in a positive way. And I don't, I'm not meaning to dishonor the 12 steps. I definitely go to meetings. I am part of a group. There's a Bible study group that I attend religiously because I know it's a very important part of my recovery as a sinner. Um, um, and the other thing is, as a clinician, I can't preach this without living it myself. Okay, because hypocrisy is detected very quickly by um, folk recovering from addicts and alcoholics. All right, so the group also gives them a social support network. A lot of times that's very important because it's powerful to pick up the phone and say to a person, I'm in trouble, and they understand exactly what you mean. 
It's not your Aunt Betty who's like, what do you mean trouble? You're messing with the law again? You know, people clueless about what it is you actually mean. Um, and then family support groups. One of the things that we pay attention to at the Behavioral Medicine Center is alcohol is traumatic to families. Mm -hmm. Alcohol and, and addiction, it's traumatic to the family. And so in caring for the addict and the alcoholic, we do not want to forget to address the needs of the family. And so we have family support um, groups as well. Um, as just in talking and conceptualizing this, I was just reminded what an extensive team we have in order to participate in this, in this uh, disease of uh, recovery, um, in this disease of recovery, in the disease of addiction. Um, so we have nurses, we have counselors, therapists, we have chaplains, um, we have students that we're training and it's so critical for them to be exposed and understand the seriousness of this condition. Um, and we also have administrators. Administrators are so important because they make sure I don't have to sit in meetings all day. Um, but it's a team, it's a full-on team, and I'm sure I've missed somebody. Um, there's a social worker and the case managers who make sure that we get paid. So a lot of people helping this out. Um, we also have the Behavioral Health Institute, where I have an outpatient practice. Um, so that's, I have an addiction clinic where I do medication management, psychotherapy, and in development, we are going to be developing specialty groups and educational workshops. So with addictions, you have to come at this, you know, full scale. Ultimate goal is realigning the addict with their identity, their purpose, and their meaning. Okay, so one of the things that's very fascinating to me is some of the crucial things that we can learn from God's Word. Take, for example, the sanctuary service. Who's familiar with the sanctuary service? Okay, and so I'm not going to go through all the verses that back everything up, but there's a crucial role for fasting when it comes to addictions. Now again, we've got to be careful because with eating disorders, they're actually addicted to restraining. Okay? So we've got to be careful with that. We've got to be sensitive to that. But at the same time, there's a crucial role for fasting. When I say fasting, though, you're not just purpose, purposelessly abstaining. Now you're abstaining from the given thing and you're praying as well. Because your goal, your purpose, your intention is to reconnect with God. Okay? So imagine the role of fasting. And the reason I put fasting there is because what was happening here? We are talking about the courtyard of the sanctuary service. And it was in the, in the courtyard of the sanctuary service that we encountered two pieces of furniture. So this is the altar of sacrifice. And that altar of sacrifice, you can get the scripture, make sure I'm not lying, but it signifies the cross of Christ. It signifies the, 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 the crucifixion and the sacrifice Christ made to redeem us. What did this signify, the labor? What did that stand for? Baptism, death to self. Ultimately, when we're talking about addiction, what are we talking about? Self-gratification. And so here you have the labor emphasizing the crucial role of death to self. Death to self. Stop the inward focus and let's focus outward and upward. Okay, you see how helpful some of these philosophies are for addictions? Um, then, of course, there is, remember what the warning from Psalms 1 was. Meditate on the law. Well, here is our big book, the Bible. Okay, this provides what it is we should be focusing our thoughts on. 
Okay? And then what do we have here? The altar of incense. We're in the holy place now. Prayer. The significance of prayer. And of course, the, the candlesticks. Let your light so shine before men, they will see your good works and glorify who? The Father. You'd have a witness. You'd have a witness. And if they studied the sanctuary service, they would understand. How was that candlestick produced, incidentally? How was it produced? From one piece of gold. And it was, who said it? Beaten and beaten and beaten until you could get the beautiful details of the almond flower to the point where the detail was so precise there was also an almond in it. So that we come to understand that this difficult light that is beating us is producing something beautiful if we will continue on the path outlined by God's word. Immediately, the addict would understand their purpose. That there is a purpose in all of this. And that was all the holy place. A lot of times people see this as old furniture. Let me show you how useful this is, though. You imagine the wife yells at me and she says, you know, go take out the garbage. And I check my tongue. I don't respond immediately. But I think about the crucifixion of Christ. And I adopt an attitude of sacrifice. And I die to self. You see, a lot of anger, a lot of anger comes from feeling insulted, focusing on self. How dare you talk to me like that? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were dead. You know, I thought you got baptized. I thought it was Christ alive. So don't you mean Christ is offended? You know? And after I died to self, I went over here and actually brought relevant scripture to mind. You know, let your words be like apples of gold and settings of silver. You know, and then I actually whispered a prayer. Father, please help me not to be angry. Help me not to be insulting, but help me to be caring. What would my witness be at that point? Coming out of that experience, now I responded probably sound a lot more like, yes, dear. <laughs> it's the least I can do. Okay? Because ultimately, the whole purpose of this is to get us back to this. Reconnection with God. I agree. Dislocation puts us at risk for addictions. And God wants us reconnected. And so he designed a little obstacle course for us to understand reconnection. And when you look at how the furniture is outlaid, it's outlaid in the pattern of a cross. So, why did I show you that? Um, I'm bringing you back to Daniel. For Daniel, it all started with his commitment to his diet. And too often when we hear diet, we think of food. But there is no way you're going to choose unhealthy food and it not spill over into other areas of your life. Okay? What we eat is spiritual. What we eat is spiritual, and it's the beginning of addictions. All right, so I had the question asked to me um, uh, how do you deal with the fact that with, you know, sex addiction, they view <coughs> masturbation or self gratification as healthy? You know, and if any of you are in the field of secular mental health, even some Christian, I was shocked, even some Christian mental health practitioners believe sexual gratification is healthy. Okay? So, let me go on record as saying that I disagree. Um, and, and here is why. T 
take a person who is addicted to sex. Again, a person who is addicted to sex, right? How are they going to define recovery? Now, the secular um, literature would like to say recovery will be what they define it as. Now, that's a little problematic to me because you're taking a person who struggles with boundaries in the first place and you're asking them to set the boundary. Okay, so that seems a little wishy-washy, one. Two, so what are you going to do now when that patient now goes home and they set a questionable boundary between them and their spouse? And keep in mind, often people struggling with addictions choose other people who are struggling with addictions. So I think there's quite a bit of proof that there's going to be some problem with setting boundaries, and so we need to be clear what the boundary is. And then you have the standard set by God. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not commit adultery. So that that gives us so much insight into what sexual recovery would look like for a person who is in a committed marital relationship. Because obviously they're not going to abstain for the rest of their life. Give me a break. You know? So what is healthy sex going to look like? This is Dr. White's opinion. Okay, So just do with it as you wish. But it is in my opinion that healthy sexual recovery would look like you taking the focus off self and focusing on the sexual pleasuring of that other person. Okay, you taking the focus off of self and focusing, pleasuring that other person sexually. Okay, so your, your, your focus is outward. And obviously I'm talking about in a committed marital relationship. So what does that do? And entrusting that person to be the sole person responsible for pleasuring you sexually. So a lot of times folk will come in, guys in particular, hey man, she doesn't want to have sex. Um, and what that tells me immediately is a lot of the time, not always, a lot of times it's because her needs are not being prioritized. Because ultimately, when you're asking for sex, what you're really saying is, hey, can you pleasure me? You know, and that gets old after a while. You know, as opposed to, can I pleasure you? But there are people who are struggling with that too, so let, let me be um, fair. But does that, is that clear on what sexual recovery would look like? Okay, so now you're focused on, you know, outward focused. And the other thing that that's protective is that now there's immediate accountability. The sex experience cannot take place in isolation. It's placed back in the context of community. That's my argument for my personal philosophy. All right? Okay, so in summary, God set up a perfect system. The devil played an instrumental role in corrupting that system. Addiction is a primary tool the devil uses uh, to, to disconnect us from each other, from God, and the purpose that God has aligned us to. Christ is a proponent of recovery. In fact, Christ is trying to recover us to salvation. He is recovering us to an eternal high in him. Folk, I'm going to encourage you to be sober and to be vigilant. Because our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In the next slide, I'm going to show you a man who went hunting. And what he was doing was um, he had shot big game, so like an elk or something. 
But he's out there by himself, so he's trying to take a picture of it. And so he set up the automatic flash. And it wasn't till the next day that he was able to see what he took a picture of. Can you see it? The flash probably saved his life. But that man is us. We walk around here so often thinking we are the predator, when in fact we're the prey. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.